bandwidth for this week's episode of Book Eyes is brought to you by hollowbooks.com, where they create custom-made books where you can hide just about anything. You choose the book, they do the rest. It's the Book Guys Show. My name is Paul Alves. We're back for another Meet the Authors episode. Uh, we have been quite a while between episodes. I know it's not normal, ha. Uh, but we have been working on the new Ministry of Podcasts website, and we're going to be announcing uh, a little bit more about that in the coming weeks. We have some exciting, exciting and wonderful podcasts joining us for that uh, effort, and uh, it's going to be quite an interesting website as well. But uh, let's get right into it today. We have our first author. His name is Chris Beakey. He's in on the line right now. How you doing, Chris? I'm doing great. Hey, and uh, like I said before the show, Chris, I, I'm, I'm literally holding my pop filter up with one hand like a lollipop in front of my face. It's kind of weird, but <laughs> we'll try to make it through here. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's start off and find out a little bit about you yourself, Chris. Uh, when did you uh, start uh, the writing? Uh you know those kids who are 10 years old and they get a they get a toy, they get a watch, they get a truck, they get a a radio right. and they automatically start taking it apart and putting it back together. I think I was one of those kids when it came to writing and storytelling. Um, from my earliest memories of childhood, I was just always fascinated by storytelling, uh, fascinated by language and uh I, I actually remember Paul being, I think, eight or nine years old and writing stories. I think my first story was some gripping tale about a, uh, a haunted treasure box in an attic somewhere because no one else had ever thought of that but me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it goes back to those early days. And uh, as I've told other people, I wasn't much of a student in school. I tended to pay attention to stuff I cared about. And uh, English and, and writing was always something that mattered the most. Um, and I finally, I guess when I was around 21 or 22, I finally actually got very serious about it in terms of uh, applying myself and working hard. And um, I won my first short story contest when I was 23. And from there worked uh, probably 20 years before I was actually published again. So it's been a very long haul. Can you remember some of your first books? I think that's a great gift. And, and a lot of parents uh, uh, really don't realize how important it is to start children reading or listening to audiobooks yeah. at an early age. Yeah, I remember the first books I liked. I liked Treasure Island. Um, uh, I loved reading about uh, Greek mythology, you know, probably for the same reasons that kids today and adults, of course, love Harry Potter. I was always just uh, kind of entranced by the whole the whole uh, juxtaposition between what we know is real and, and what we imagine. And um, I think that um, my, uh, my third book that I'm working on now actually strays farther into the, into the paranormal than my first two books. And I think a lot of it goes back to that, that early love of that in my childhood. Uh, where are you located, Chris? We forgot to ask you off the top there. Uh, I have kind of a split personality. I work okay. in Washington, D.C. Uh, four days a week. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm a ghostwriter, uh, so I write for lots and lots of other people and their voices. And then I spend three days a week uh, in Lewis, Delaware, 
uh, where I write my fiction and I write magazine stories. I always find ghostwriting to be fascinating, and you do it for, uh, I guess it's a, was it NGO kind of type? Yeah, of, uh, a nonprofit organization. Right. How That's much right. of your voice gets into the writing? Uh, I would say that I work for the organization because I have a strong uh, connection to what they do. Uh, we promote public policies that make life better for at-risk kids, kids from poor families. So every time I write about something, um, a lot of times I'm actually scratching the surface of my own heart uh, in terms of what I write right. and the stories I tell. But I actually, before I write for any of our members, I either talk to them online um, or on the phone or, you know, I do spend some time getting in their heads because at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, I might be writing an opinion piece from somebody who, um, a major league football player, and then at 4 p.m. I might be writing from the perspective of a, of a Western sheriff, and they'd be two very different voices. Um, so it's, uh, it's definitely a, it's a creative, writing, uh, creative writing exercise and also a little bit of a body-snatching exercise, I'd say. Yeah, and it sounds like you're, you're keeping your, uh, your writing muscles uh, well-exercised. Ah, <laughs> uh, it's so true. You know, uh, Mary Higgins Clark, who some some of the uh, grandparents who are on this thing, she uh, she was a woman who I think she had five kids, lost her husband at an early age, had to raise her kids, got up every morning, worked from five o'clock to seven a.m. writing her short stories and her novels, and then from nine to six she had to go write radio copy all day. And you know, when she's interviewed, she talks about how that job actually made her a better fiction writer because if you're writing for the mass media you've got a matter of seconds to get somebody's attention and at least in terms of the writing that i do the thriller writers you actually have to grip people from the moment they they you know they they get on the page so i i just consider myself very fortunate to have a day job writing you know, that I really, writing content that I really care about, and then just being able to go down into my head for the rest of the time and write my stories and my novels. It's a, it's a great life. Fantastic. And now let's, let's talk about a little bit about when you get home, when you're writing mm -hmm. as Chris Beakey mm -hmm. uh, from The Heart. Uh, and mm -hmm. your latest, of course, is Fatal Option, which is, uh, I believe it's out now by Post Hill Press and Simon & Schuster. Yeah. Yeah, Post Hill Press, Simon Schuster. It's been out, I think, maybe five weeks now. And um, it's a, uh, you know, I, I, all of the thrillers that I write, pretty much almost all the fiction I write is, tends to be about good people caught in bad places. Um, I'm just fascinated with the, I'm fascinated with the idea of characters being put in moral dilemmas with very, very high stakes. Um, that's what I followed with my first novel that was published 10 years ago um, that was a finalist for the uh, Lambda Literary Award. And it's definitely what I followed with this one too. Um, the, the same idea about, you know, Fatal Option is basically about a very good man who does a very bad thing for the best of all possible reasons. And then he tries to get away with it and it doesn't go so well. Yeah, he, and we have our auntie here who's uh, following him as well, yes? 
<laughs> yes, absolutely. I uh, I like the idea of, and I know you're seeing more of this on television now, but the idea of the protagonist or the hero who's got some deep flaws, um, who maybe, in my case, he's a guy who actually commits a crime, and the whole idea of a uh, a reader caring enough about this this person, this character, to actually hope that he gets away with it. Um, because if he doesn't get away with it, he's going to lose his family. Yeah. And, and okay, a Fatal Option. What was your first book uh, called? Uh, my first book was called uh, Double Abduction, and it was published uh, 10 years ago this year. And again, I, you know, I, I got to tell you, if there are writers listening to this podcast, something I learned a long time ago, I learned the hard way. I spent... Um, 20 years getting up every morning at five writing for two hours and I wrote three books uh, and they were competent you know people like them couldn't get an agent I couldn't sell them and so I had you know I think I was probably 45 years old at that point and had been failing for all this time and had kind of given up the idea that I'd ever succeed and one day I I woke up and I thought you know what what the heck, I don't care what anybody thinks, I'm gonna write uh, the kind of book that really, really scares me, that is very deeply personal, and I'm not gonna worry about it being too edgy or too raw to succeed, and I did. I got up, I've, I've said this before, I, I got up and I wrote about my deepest fear, which was the abduction of a child. Um, I was working as a mentor in the inner city at the time, uh, it was something I worried about a lot, and I just went to that what-if place that writers go, and I thought, what if I was a preschool teacher, and my nephew was abducted? Um, I became the lead suspect because the crime mirrored an abduction and a murder that happened exactly five years ago that was an exactly similar crime, and I kind of went from there. I, I literally held the knife to my own jugular the whole time I was writing and just poured it all out. Well, the funny thing was, it was raw, it was edgy, it was the kind of book, you know, I, most of my friends or parents, half of them said, that's my worst nightmare, I can't wait to read it. The other half said, that's my worst nightmare, there's no way in hell I'm reading that. And that's actually what made the book sell. Um, I think it, it was so raw and visceral that it just kind of pulsed on the page. And uh, so that was that's what I broke through. So if, if there are other writers, what I would say is you I think that any writing that's any good has to be personal. If it's fiction, if it's if it's a, you know, a novel or a short story, you've got to write about things that really wreck you. They either make you cry, they make you laugh like crazy but they're things that really provoke an emotion in you. So that was my first book. And I kind of went through the same, same mental process with the second one, Fatal Option. Now, now Fatal Option uh, comes 10 years after double abduction. So mm -hmm. uh, my question is, uh, how, how long did it take you to write Fatal Option? And I'm not criticizing. I know that, you know, some authors can, <laughs> yeah. can do a novel Gosh. in a weekend and some will take 30 years, you know? Uh, yeah. Uh, every once in a while, I just for fun and make myself feel bad. I, I go on Amazon and look at 
how many books Nora Roberts has written in the past three weeks under different names <laughs> or whatever, Stephen King, turning one out every six months. Now, to Stephen, um, to Stephen King's credit, he actually does write all those books. I mean, uh, I know, like I a, do, I believe it. <laughs> James Patterson, I, who has a, not, a room full yeah. of people writing for him, I mean. Yeah, no, I, I know he does. I, I'm, I'm a slower writer. I have to... Um, I have to kind of live through the story myself before I can commit it to paper. I mean, live through it in my mind. I think I spent, and, and of course, having a day job too, Paul. I mean, I've only right. got a limited number of time, but I think I probably worked on it for six years to get a first draft. And then I spent a year revising. Um, my agent shopped it around. I uh, didn't get any takers for a few months. And then... He and I had a little bit of a falling out, um, and then finally a certain editor found this book and really liked it and believed it, and that's what led to publication. Yeah, perseverance. Yeah, you got to. Yeah, you'd be surprised how many books get rejected without you know even the cover letter being read. You know, uh, just piles and piles uh, accumulated some, and, and you know that's that's why I always tell authors not to take any rejection personally because. It literally may not have even made it to someone's eyeballs. Yeah. Just, just keep at it. It's such a tough life, and I am, um, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty happy, optimistic person. I don't harbor any. I don't get angry at the publishing industry or agents. I mean, they're. It's a tough life for them too. Um, I think what is perplexing to a lot of writers, though, is, and I actually review books as well in my free time. And what's I think what's really perplexing to a lot of people is. They see a book and it's really super hyped and they go to read it and they read it and they, they're kind of like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't think it's a very good book. And then there are so many absolutely wonderful books that I've read and reviewed that nobody else has ever heard of. So you just kind of have to accept that if you do this, you have to do it because you're completely compelled to do it and just write the story that's personal to you. And hope something happens. Hope it finds an audience. Okay. And where, where can folks find all of your books, Chris? Uh, well, Fatal Options out now in hardcover um, and also on Kindle. Um, of course, you can go to Amazon and uh, read the reviews. I uh, got a great review from Kirkus um, uh, a couple months ago. Uh, lots of blogger interviews. Um Lots of Goodreads interviews, which are important because they're regular, everyday people. So you can order it on Amazon in hardcover or on Kindle. And they're bringing out an audio book uh, next month. Um, and then you might be able to mosey on into a Barnes & Noble six weeks after publication and find a copy on the shelf. And then, of course, libraries uh, have really embraced the book. So it's in a lot of public libraries. We'll be glad to have you back on, Chris, on one of our panels. But right now, it looks like we've got uh, a break coming up, and we're going to okay. throw it to uh, Professor Allen, uh, who was former host, now turned, uh, I guess we could call him a segment producer. We'll see you, Chris. Thank you for joining okay, us. Okay, take care. Thank you. Appreciate it.
For more exciting adventures in audio time and space, visit us online at amaudiomedia.com. This is Father Robert Balasser, the digital Jesuit from Twyet, this week in Enterprise Tech, and you're listening to The Book Guys. Book Guys! This is Professor Allen on assignment for The Book Guys. I've tracked down a former guest who has a new book out. Welcome back to the podcast, Thomas DJ. Thank you for having me again, Professor. Absolutely. You know, we always start with the what are you reading segment, so I'll ask you, what books or comic books or audio books have you consumed recently? Well, I'm just finishing up reading the complete Black Panther Christopher Priest collection. Oh, good. I'm a big Christopher Priest fan, and that's I'm surprised at how well that series has hold, held up, even though it's over 10 years old. I've been reading a book called The Deep Blue Alibi. It's a legal thriller by this writer, Paul Levine, who I've found and become very, very, very fond of. I've been also reacquainting myself with the great Richard Prather, the author of the Shell Scott Mysteries. And I've been presently reading his book, Dead Man's Walk, which is about voodoo. We talked with you all the way back on episode 93. Upon the release of yeah. New Roads to Hell, a novel that was both a superhero adventure and a bit of a period piece as well. And now we've got the second offering in this world, the, the world of the Shadow Legion. So tell us about this new effort, Nightmare City. The way that we've always, I've always plotted out these books is that the even number books would be more collections. And what this is, is it's four individual stories, one for each of the four Shadow Legionnaires, as they encounter new menaces, new problems, and new terrors in the city that lives by night, Nocturne. Now I have some inside information that the upcoming third book in this series, as you said, is going to go back to a novel form. What was the, the thinking behind making this second one a short story collection? Well, it's just generally all the uh, Shadow Legion books are supposed to be 60,000 words. And I realized that if you took four 15,000 word stories, you'd have yourself with a whole (laughs) book. There you go. The way I put it is that whereas if you read one of the novels, it's like a graphic novel collection Mm -hmm. of a single storyline. But when you read the even number books, it's kind of like those polybag comics you used to get at Walmart, <laughs> where you would have the, the two sandwiching the third one, and you had to kind of, you know, play around to find out what the third book was. This is a Shadow Legion polybag with four individual <laughs> comics with each of the individual characters. Uh, from your from your perspective, from the from the writing perspective. So what are the fundamental differences? Obviously not just the length of the story, but but, uh, of of the story process, short story process versus the novel process. You have to be a little bit more concise in what you, you, with the novel, you're allowed to spread out a little bit. Right. And take your time. And 
get prosaic if you want to, whereas with a short story, you have to be a lot more on point, both plot-wise and thematically. So what we had to do was, knowing the different themes I wanted to hit with these with these short stories, I had to keep a lot more focused on how to get things developed and keep it moving. Right. So here we've got stories of the Ferryman, Nightbreaker, mm-hmm. Black Talon, and Dreamcatcher, which, by the way, are four awesome character names, by the way. Thank you. Just tell us uh, just a little bit about uh, one of these characters. I like that. I've, I have uh, pleasant memories of Nightbreaker. Uh, Nightbreaker. Um, Nightbreaker is a midnight man, and that comes from the concept that the ticks of the clock between 11.59 p.m. and 12 o'clock a.m. are kind of a limbo. And if you die in that period, you kind of fall through the cracks of reality. <laughs> the Nightbreaker, Isaiah Copper, lives in a side real universe to the side of our reality, which allows him to move back and forth between those realities. It's almost like he appears and disappears at will. Mm-hmm. Now, he's become more the technological character of the four Shadow Legionnaires, thanks to his exposure to Jenny Argo, who you're going to meet in this book. And you're also going to see the introduction of what is his, now his signature weapon, the multi-gun. These sound like characters and ideas straight out of the 1930s adventure serials. And mm-hmm. obviously you've got, a, you've got a, a comic book vibe going to it, and that's sort of the late 30s. But you've got this also old-school radio adventure yeah. vibe, obviously... That's not an accident. No, no. I mean, in fact, the Nightbreaker started out as a radio hero in the world of Nocturne. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the idea was that as we moved forward in time, it would reflect more the state of comic books at that time. Mm, Okay. So... The first book and uh, the Nightbreaker story, which takes place concurrently and immediately after New Roads to Hell, uh, is kind of like a 1940s story. So that's why we have made-up cities in in this world, because in the 1940s, all the cities were made up. (laughs) Right. But as we get closer, like the book that I just finished, uh, which is the third book in the series, takes place in the 50s. So you have a lot more of a technological influence as we get into the space race and... Mm, The atomic age. The atomic age, exactly. And the villain is very much a villain that reflects that era. You mentioned putting your stories in a fictionalized world and sort of in terms of comic books, you're sort of following, at least at this point, the DC Comics model. Mm-hmm. creating fictional cities as opposed to the Marvel Comics model of putting their characters in real cities. Was it uh, as simple as you said? Well, it was the 1930s, and that was the state of comic books? Or, or, or well, that was, was there... the idea. Mm-hmm. And the other great thing, of course, is if you have a fictional city, you can build it any way you want. Exactly. If you want a... Uh, a mystical neighborhood, you can have a mystical neighborhood. If you want a swamp, you can have a swamp. Exactly. If you want a dock, 
outside area that becomes a magnet for scientific research. You can have that. Right. And obviously in reading New Roads to Hell, there's clearly a New Orleans vibe. Yes, that was totally intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at New Roads to Hell, you'll see references to other cities, and you could probably guess which ones they mm-hmm. are, <laughs> which ones they're supposed to be. So, right. you, have, and you, you don't have a Gotham City, but you have is it Empire City? City of Empire, yes. <laughs> and we have Jotun and uh, St. Christabel, which Dreamcatcher and Black Talon visit in a short story that I published in a book called Strange and Cozy, hmm. which is supposed to be Los Angeles. So in these, uh, like I said, these... You know, these are our are, are prose stories, just to em- emphasize that, despite the comic book and, and superhero mm-hmm. vibe to them. But as I said, they are at least, uh, you know, those ones from the 30s and 40s era, those seem to have, again, that that uh, old school adventure story of the, of the pulps. Mm-hmm. With, and that vibe was specifically something you were going for, that sort of pulp uh, yeah. adventure feel? Well, of course, since... Um... The book has been brought out by Airship 27, which is a new pulp uh, publication house. Of course, I wanted to get a little bit of that that pulp vibe to it. And if you look at the comics of the 30s, a lot of the there's a lot of influence of the old pulps in there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've got a little bit of the Shadow and a little bit of the Green Hornet and some of those mm-hmm. some of those characters as well. Right. In, in terms of either the superhero side, the comic book side, or the old-time pulp adventure side, who would you say would be role models or, or inspirations for you in terms of you know, how you're wanting to tell these stories? Well, I like to say that the Shadow Legion is my version of the Defenders. So, of course, <laughs> I look towards my favorite writer of that, that team, which is Steve Gerber who always seemed to do the bizarre, the bizarre villains. You always got the impression right. that the Defenders, when they were lining up to, to give out supervillains, they always got the, the dregs that nobody else wanted. <laughs> I, I tend to, you know, Steve Gerber is a big influence on me. Um, Doug Bench, to a lesser extent, that's who I kind of look, to, look towards. Although I have to admit that my stories are a little bit darker than mm-hmm. Gerber's ever got. Right. How about on the prose side of it? Inspirations or, or, or who are you a fan of in, in sort of that, that side of the storytelling equation? You know, you can't go wrong with Lester Dent, mm-hmm. who is, was a really great storyteller and probably would have been held in a lot more uh, esteem if he was writing something else other than Pulp Adventures. Um, and other than that, it's people like to, to go back to somebody I mentioned, Richard Prather, the people who wrote the pocketbooks of the 40, late 40s and early 50s, which were very much the pulps of their time. You've also had some work published in the weird Western genre. Tell us yeah, about Don that. Quavo. Yeah, tell us about, about those stories and... and where they've appeared. 
Well, Don Cleveland started out as a creation for How the West Was Weird, a series of weird Western uh, anthologies edited by Russ Anderson for Pulp Works Press. He's this mystic, kind of, sort of, uh, partially based on the man with no name, although, of course, obviously he has a name. <laughs> He's a sort of a frontier exorcist, like I, as I like to call, call him. Him and his assistant, Dolores, going from town to town solving mysterious problems, but at the cost of a terrible price for the people who need the problem solved. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, I know who he is and where he comes from, and I've been dropping hints in the various stories, but I don't know if I'm ever going to let people know the, the, the equivalent of Wolverine Origins for him. <laughs> right. Because we all know how well that worked out. Yeah. <laughs> And whether this ever happens in print or not, do you imagine, in your mind, do these stories take place in the same world, or could they take place oh, in they the same world? They definitely take place in the same world. If you've read Nightmare City in the story, uh, the Berman story, there is a direct reference to a character having an experience with a pale gentleman who is supposed to be Don Cuevo, and uh, a character that was introduced... In a Dreamcatcher story that I wrote for, I think it was the Pulpworks Christmas Annual of 2015, showed up in a Don Quavo story. So they're definitely part of the Shamira Falls universe. This is a question we ask most authors, especially those mm-hmm. like yourselves who have a background in podcasting. Okay. At the Book Guy Show, we're big fans of audiobooks and audio dramas. So is there any mm-hmm. chance of getting audio versions? There already is an audiobook version of New Roads to Hell. Ah, terrific. Which you can get through audible.com. Uh, it was Great. very weird because they sent me a, a complimentary copy of it, and it was so weird hearing your own words thrown back <laughs> at you right, by a strange voice. And I have to assume that Nightmare City is going to follow it as an audiobook, particularly since, from what I understand from Airship 27, the short stories seem to be working better for them than the novels. On the audio side? Interesting. On the audio side, exactly. Yeah, okay. yeah. And I would love, I'm a big fan of audio drama, and I mean, you remember for uh, New Roads to Hell, we had a kind of audio drama advertisement. Right, right, the trailer, that was great. I would love to do an audio drama with the characters. It's just the case of getting people together. Right. I mean, obviously, with this setting, with this type of character, with the era the books are set in, I mean, an audio drama in the style of 30s, 40s radio show. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it should be a perfect marriage. Somebody get on this. Yeah. I mean, I'm grateful to all the people who helped me in the last, the last one. You know, Bill Robinson, Des Reddick. Mm-hmm. Kalen Conley, uh, Rachel and Michael Bailey, all of the people who contributed voices to that. Unfortunately, when the trailer comes out for this book, it's just going to be one voice, because <laughs> I have to throw it together at a rather quick pace. Right. Sure. But maybe for the third book, we'll be back to a full audio <laughs> drama style. That would be great, because that just, that's just a great tease. We said the, we have uh, audio versions available at Audible. The books. Audible.com, yes. We have uh, paper versions and Kindle right. versions available at Amazon. Right. 
Is there other uh, social media or anywhere else online where listeners can find you and or other parts of your work? Well, I maintain a blog about the Shimmer Falls universe called Welcome to the Nocturne Travel Agency, which is at welcometonocturne.blogspot.com. It hasn't been updated for a while, mm-hmm. but I'm supposed I should probably get back on that, considering that we have a new book to promote. <laughs> um, there is also another blog called Damn Your Ears, Damn Your Eyes, which is a movie review blog. Mm, okay, featuring right. the 10 Statements About series, where I watch a movie and make 10 statements about it. I like that format. Yeah, well, I, I just wanted to do something different from a regular regular mm-hmm. review, you know? And this is what it came up with. And this is the era of lists. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that, that, that works just fine. Most recently, I covered the film Black Dynamite, mm. and to the consternation of many, I didn't think too highly of it. <laughs> you have to be out there with your own well, thoughts. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, exactly. I'm trying to think of what, you know, I have a Facebook presence. There, I think there's a Facebook fan page for the Nocturne books. I'm not sure if it's active right now. Once again, maybe I should reactivate it if it's not. <laughs> we do have a new book out. And again, that new book is Nightmare City, the second book featuring the Shadow Legion collection of four short stories. And the author is Thomas DJ. If you're looking for that on Amazon, it's D-E-J-A, Thomas DJ. Thanks for joining us, Thomas. Always a pleasure. Whenever you need me, I'll be here. Good to talk to you again. Hey, it's Craig here with a quick review. Today I finished listening to Frank Herbert's The Godmakers. And I'll say up front, one of my favorite books of all time is Frank Herbert's Dune. Uh, I like all six of his original Dune series books. And this book is clearly the predecessor to Dune. It has nothing to, it's not Dune directly, but you can see that he was already building the Dune universe when he wrote this. And and oddly enough, this book came out after the first two Dune books. So uh, Dune came out in 65, Dune Messiah in 66, and The Godmakers came out in 72. The thing is, it is a novelization of four short stories he had written in the 50s uh, into the into 1960. So 58, 59, and 1960, he had written these four short stories and later turned it into this novel, The Godmakers. And it's really interesting that he did that because, I mean, there are things like the, the main character is a comes from a long breeding line of where it was only supposed to be women and now he's a guy. And he becomes a god. Exactly like Paul Atreides in Dune. Um, there's a lot of other, you know, pre clearly pre-Dune thought processes going on in the way he's treating politics and and religion and having I mean, in in the Godmakers, they tend to be this, uh, their departments, um, something happened in the past. They don't, there was a war and a lot of planets were lost 
and now they're trying to refind them. What's interesting to me as a real uh, Dune fan is if you've read all six, the last one, Chapter House Dune, is all about these humans coming back into the known universe. Um, they had been sent out pre-Dune, and now they're coming back, and what they're bringing with them is an unknown. And in The Godmakers, it's kind of the reverse. It's it's the um, the main group of humans going out and trying to find it. So I'll, I'll say if you're a Dune fan, read the book. You're going to enjoy it. If you're not a Dune fan, you probably won't like it very, very much in the same style. And it's just the way Frank Herbert wrote. That's the way it is. If you're... If, you, if Dune scares you a bit, because it's such a big book and uh, possibly has a, a longer movie adaptation, the original movie adapt, adaptation, this is a easier way to get into it and un, kind of understand what Dune is about. But I will say Dune much better, much better developed. This clearly was him building the original base for Dune and, and created Dune based on these ideas. There you go. Hope you enjoyed my review. And if you read the book, I hope you enjoy it. I did. Hi, this is Jeremy Bullock, Boba Fett from the first Star Wars trilogy. Come and read my book. Go online, jeremybullock.com, and you can see all about my book, Flying Solo. You've been listening to The Book Guys. Book Guys. And we're back from the break, and we've got a wonderful author with us. All the way from Cassini, Florida, is Mr. Stephen Whitfield. How are you, sir? Hello, I am good. Thank you so much for having me on Book Guys. Oh, not a problem. And, and of course, uh, in here with the in the interview is Mr. Craig Damlo in Seattle. How are you, sir? Good. I'm doing very good. Good. I, I'm excited to talk a bit about Omari and the People. Uh, not only the book, but the audio book, uh, which I've been enjoying, and uh, the wonderful narration thereof, and the wonderful writing. Um, but maybe we'll start off, Stephen. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I know you're a bit of a... You've been around the world a bit, have you not? Just a bit, yeah. <laughs> I, um, I, I was born in Chicago, um, raised in Gary. Um, I uh, went to school in both Indiana, at Indiana University and uh, Chicago Theological Seminary um, and Loyola University in Chicago. I joined the Marine Corps, uh, traveled, got deployed, um, and uh, have uh, enjoyed some remarkable experiences. I, I love chatting with uh, with uh, authors who have served in you know the services because you always have some interesting tor- uh, story details, and uh, sometimes they they sneak their way into your books. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Although the yes. Na- the names sometimes are changed to protect the innocent. <laughs> <laughs> That's very important. And now, Stephen, uh, tell us a bit about um, yourself. What's your background uh, other in the Marines? I mean, uh, where have you where have you served exactly? Well, um, I I served. I, I actually was in the Marines on two occasions. I was in during the, the Vietnam War. Uh, I got out, I came back in, um, and uh, I was uh, deployed to Beirut, Lebanon in 1983 as part of the Multinational Peacekeeping Force. Um, I did the equivalent of two tours there, 
Um, and uh, other places that uh, I was able to visit were uh, Norway, France, uh, Scotland, the Isle of Man, wow. um, Liverpool, different places. Um, I also had the, the good fortune of traveling to uh, parts of Africa uh, with a, uh, on a seminary trip. I somehow uh, persuaded the seminary uh, president to take me along to carry his bags when he was going on a trip to uh, meet with church officials in uh, South Africa and in Zimbabwe. So that was pretty extraordinary. Well played, sir. So. <laughs> um, uh, Stephen, tell us a bit about uh, Omari and the People, your latest book, which I believe is right now on shelves. Yes, it's on shelves. It's on audiobook. It's uh, uh, on iTunes. Uh, it's an ebook as well. Well, actually, uh, Omari and the People started off as a, a short story. Uh, one day I was uh, uh, at a jail, and I noticed a young woman who looked uh, very fit and very ferocious. She looked as if uh, she uh, had come from a, a tough background, and as, as it happens with uh, people who are looking for stories, my man, mind began to imagine uh, her as a ruthless criminal who has risen from poverty from the underclass to uh, some notoriety. That story is also what, uh, what formed the, the central thrust of Omari and the People. The, the story was also about a, a community of people who are facing disaster, uh, having seen uh, disasters in my lifetime. I thought it was fascinating how people were at their worst at some times and sometimes at their best under uh, under the stress uh, of ordeal. And so that, along with my being influenced by the book of Exodus, uh, kind of pulled together to form the story of Omari and the people, of a people who uh, actually, as a result of the acts of a ruthless thief, found themselves homeless, uh, and uh, ironically, they chose the very person who put the disaster in motion to uh, lead them out. I, I have to ask you about your, your choice for, for narrator, uh, if it was your choice. Uh, I, I mean, sometimes the publisher chooses the narrator. How did that come about, uh, Kurt Simmons uh, narrating your, your book? Right. It was, uh, he was my choice. Uh, I had uh, asked for a number of auditions, and uh, his came late. But as soon as I heard it, I realized that he was perfect uh, for what I wanted to do. His sense of timing, uh, his sense of drama, and his clarity uh, was, uh, was right on. And so uh, I was excited uh, when he agreed to uh, come on board after, uh, after some negotiation. I, I do want to say he's got that perfect balance where he, he can do that, that, um, that voice. He can do that uh, accent. Yeah, but he, but he does it so subtly that it do, it really doesn't interfere with your understanding of each and every word. It's just enough that I, I know that he's there in the desert, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was... Now, when I, when I put out the call for auditions, I uh, 
uh, included, among other uh, voices uh, for preferences, someone with a Middle Eastern accent or someone who could do a Middle Eastern accent. However, when I listened to his audition, uh, it was uh, it wasn't Middle Eastern. It was uh, pretty straightforward Americana. And um, but as he read it, it seemed that he began to channel uh, the storyteller um, uh, of this story. And uh, he, he developed an accent, and he got excited about it, and then I got excited about it, and uh, kind of took off from there. So he did, a, he did a really fine job. So I know then a lot of times when, at least I know when I read, and I think uh, most people read, they, they kind of get a picture of the person in their mind's eye, and you know movies come along and ruin that. But uh, <laughs> when you're writing, you're, I'm assuming you do the same thing. What I mean... You put out a call for a specific accent. Did you kind of know what Omari sounded like, or did uh, the did the audio book the narrator really capture and define that? He captured and defined it. I think. I mean, I had an idea, but uh, it you know it pretty much sounded like it was something that was going on in my mind. So it sounded a lot like me. Uh, but when I imagine uh, how it, would, it should sound to someone else, like someone who was telling the story of his people, uh, then I was really excited about the the idea that Kurt um, appeared to get into the character. I, I wouldn't call him a narrator as much as a, as a performer, uh, uh, to the point where he he was that person who I could imagine being around a fire, speaking to other uh, people and telling them in the oral tradition uh, uh, some tales about how they as a people came to be. You know, you, you explained it exactly how, how I was feeling it when, he, when he's narrating. It's like you're sitting at a fire and he's, let me tell you the story of Omari. And it was just, <laughs> it really hit it on, on the nail on the head. Um, would it be okay, Stephen, if we played a, a little bit of sample from Audible right now, and just to let the folks at home who haven't heard it yet take a little, a little taste? Sure, please do. Let's do that. As was his way, Bin Oswald took no part in the celebration, and in fact enjoyed his time alone as everyone else danced, sang, and ate. Indeed, he had always found great pleasure in his love of numbers, calculating expenses, inventories, and ultimately profits. Despite Omari's warnings about making money from the needs of others, Bin Oswat had found it profitable to provide specialty clothing for those who could afford it. He now had more than his share of food, water, tools, and other valuables. He was happily humming a tuneless melody while he sat counting a number of small gems when his tent flap flew open. A stunning young woman moved in quickly and stood over him. Astonished, he scrambled backwards with his eyes and mouth wide open, spilling the gems onto the floor. Oh, Binazwad, easy, said the woman in a rich, husky, sweet voice, and a bright smile that revealed white, even teeth. I wish you no harm. She raised her palms to calm his fright and sat down. In fact, I believe I might be of some service to you. My name is Saba Khan. Did you drop something? No longer terrified, Bin Oswald was still too surprised and embarrassed to reply, except to start picking up his gems while glancing up at the stranger. Sabakan possessed what might be called an extraordinary beauty, 
enough to turn heads. In uh, great, you know, and there you go, and that's a uh, a wonderful clip from Audible. You can go to Audible, uh, audibletrial.com/slash/bookguys, and you can get Omar and the People for free as your first book, and uh, and Stephen still gets paid. Everybody wins. So, Steve, Steve, let me ask you a question. It, one of the things I notice in this, and and it really helps for me, it helps connect the story or make it more real, I guess, is the names. Did you do research to find names from that era in that part of the world, or did you just kind of create them and try and keep them consistent to make it uh, a, a believable universe? Well, I, I, I'd say both. Um, I had, uh, as doing, as for research, I had read uh, the travelogue of a British adventurer named Sir Wilfred Thesiger. He wrote a book called Arabian Sands. I was very impressed by his writing and by the details that he used to describe uh, the travels of uh, Bedouin people who he was embedded with. Uh, across a part of the Sahara called the Empty Quarter, the Sahara Desert. Uh, and there were uh, name places and there were people's places that uh, had a certain uh, flow to it that I, that I, that I enjoyed. So, uh, but it, even so, there were some names there that weren't necessarily uh, um, Arabic uh, that I kind of mixed in. Um, Partially because uh, my understanding of communities that are on coast are that they are the, the places where trade occurs and where uh, there can be or there can be expected to be a certain diversity of people. Uh, so uh, I wanted to be consistent, but not so much so that uh, it uh, I, I would miss out on the opportunity of uh, pointing out the diversity in, even in ancient times. Now, Steve, one of our standard questions is, is the story complete or are, are we looking at, uh, are, you, are you looking to continue the story of Omari and the people in the future or uh, something set in that uh, universe? Well, I mean, it's, it's a bit of both. I think a story has to come to the story. Each story has to have its own uh, at least resting place. And uh, I felt uh, satisfied with the resting place uh, the, uh, of the ending of uh, Omari and the people. However, um, I do have in the works a, uh, a story which is connected to um, and features characters from Omar and the people um, in the works. Uh, the story is completed, it's just a matter of, uh, of continued, uh, continued work. So that, that leads me to a question I want to ask. Uh, and you know, no, you don't have to uh, break any NDAs that you have already working with the movie studios. But who would you picture playing Omari in in the movie adaptation? <laughs> you know, I think every writer, you know, thinks about those things, and so I'm I'm certainly no exception. Uh, you know, there are a number of people actually. Um, uh, there is, um, well, here, I'll tell you the one who's probably most surprising, Shia LaBeouf. Okay. Ooh. Uh, she, Shia LaBeouf. Um, there's also a fellow, um, 
uh, who is, uh, I'm struggling to remember his name right now, he, he was in this television series, um, Almost Human. Oh. Michael Ely. Uh, Michael Ely. Uh, uh, some, someone suggested Bruno Mars. Um, Phenomenal. <laughs> but Yeah. Yeah. All good ideas. Uh, Stephen, where can folks find all the wonderful uh, things that you're doing online? Well, um, I'm not sure how wonderful they are, but <laughs> I have a there's a website at uh, uh, shirleycastle.com. Shirley S H I R L E Y C A S T L E one word um, dot com. Uh, where there's more details, there are pictures, there's music, um, there are comments, there are blogs, uh, all there for people's enjoyment. Fantastic. I'm also on uh, on Facebook. Uh, I also gathered some images that I share on Pinterest, um, and uh, uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter. You got it all set up. That's about it. <laughs> well... Fantastic, I'm Stephen. sure I missed something. Hey, th th Stephen, thanks for joining us on the Book Ice Show, and uh, we hope to have you back soon sometime. It would be a pleasure. Have a great night. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's it for this week's Book Guys Show. We hope to see you again next week. Don't forget to check out emergencybroadcastsystem.info, our new news companion site to our other podcast, Emergency Broadcast System. We'll see you next week, folks. Stay tuned, book readers and book listeners. Book Guide Show will return next week. Same book time, same book channel.